0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simmy.
1: We are going to be hearing from Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry today as the province is going to announce what BC's plan is for mixing and matching different types of COVID-19 vaccines. In particular, we are especially talking about people who received AstraZeneca for their first shot, whether or not they can get Pfizer or Moderna for their second. Earlier this week, we know that Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization gave that idea a discretionary recommendation, meaning more choice could be on the way. Now, NASI is also recommending the potential for mixing and matching mRNA vaccines. So if you received Pfizer as a first dose, you could theoretically receive Moderna as a second or vice versa. BBC has already announced plans to try to go forward with that type of mixing and matching. But we wanted to talk more about this. Joining us is Jason Kinderchuk, who's an assistant professor, Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. Now, I've heard a a couple of different people on this topic, some who don't like this idea. So what is your take on it? Well,
2: listen, I I think that we're at a point where we we are getting a pretty good impression of what the vaccines look like, right? And in particular with the the mixing and matching. The the mRNA vaccines, you know, we don't have, uh, I think, you know, a lot of real concrete data yet from uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, I came up with the, I think it's the, UK COVID uh, second trial where they're doing the mix and matching. But ultimately, they're the same technologies and they're delivering the same product. So in in reality, the, the likelihood is that they're going to behave exactly the same way um, you know, with, between Pfizer and Moderna. With the AstraZeneca Pfizer, um, You know, when you look at what you're getting delivered, ultimately you are getting uh, two different delivery systems that are providing you with the exact same product. So it's kind of like you know, ordering, you know, uh, you know, the same set of furniture from two different stores. Ultimately, when you get it to your house and you pull those, you know, those blueprints out, those instructions, you're putting together the same piece of, of furniture. It's going to look the exact same. Between the AstraZeneca and, uh, and Pfizer, ultimately, you're getting something that gives you the, the something that looks like the spike protein from the virus. And really, your immune system is responding to that. It's not necessarily responding to to the delivery system itself. So, you know, I I think all of us have theorized it's likely going to work very well. The initial data suggests that it certainly works as well as the, uh, you know, the two doses um, of the same vaccine, possibly even better but I think we're at a point where, as they're phasing out AstraZeneca, we're we're going to have to do this, and I think it, it actually makes a, a lot of sense
1: at this point. Right. But you, as you said, though, you were theorizing for some of this, right? Yes. That makes some people uncomfortable.
2: Of course, and and I think you know that that's the the part of the difficulty for us uh, from the research a- uh, kind of angle and inside is trying to say, okay, this is. When we look at, at risk assessments and we go through and we, you know, we kind of postulate that something's going to work, we're doing this not based on just the fact that we, you know, kind of have you know some tendential feeling that it's going to. It's based on on our kind of inherent understanding of this, and certainly with with people that uh, that do vaccine development and immunologists, they're looking at this data day by day, and as it comes in, making those assessments of does it look safe? And certainly the the smaller trials we've seen from Spain, the data from the UK. Everything looks like it it is going to work. We're waiting for that that big piece, which is the the initial UK uh, trial data, to tell us you know how the efficacy looks with the mix and matching. But so far, everything indicates that that it is behaving the exact same as the the two doses of the exact same vaccine.
1: Right. Now, we've also heard from some people who say, no, no, there's not enough data. But Jason, how often, you know, have we done this before where we're we, we are, we're working on a preliminary set of data and our theories about something rather than waiting until everything is known completely?
2: Well, that's the thing, right? Is historically, we're, we're in a very different period than, than I think we have been. In it. And I don't say that you know, kind of, uh, you know, superfluously, it's, it is a period where we're in a great public health crisis and, and, you know, we've had four, you know, vaccines that have been licensed in Canada or been approved in, in Canada for emergency use. We're, we've are we never been in this period. But by in saying that, we certainly have seen other vaccines uh, that, that have gone through this where we may not have had the full trial data, but they've at least been being used. Certainly the Ebola vaccine, uh, in, uh, in Africa, um, certainly went through that stage where, you know, they were running clinical trials, while they were also administering, um, the product. And I think based on all the, you know, the, the data that we kind of accrued in, in our understanding of, of the technologies, yeah, you know, everything has stood up really, really well. And, and to be fair, we're at a point now where when we think about that initial clinical trial data from just the phase three trials you know, that was towards the end of summer last year, moving into fall time. So we're actually now moving into a period where we're not going to be that far from being a year removed from the start of those trials. So I think the safety, uh, that question's, you know, been answered and and is going to continue to be answered. The efficacy is, is holding up very well.
1: So if we did wait for, you know, this to be definitively known and to have all those studies done, like, how long are we talking about?
2: Well, I think we're talking about it. So, you know, quite a bit of time, right? Because by the time the phase threes get released, this trial gets done. You know, we're talking about just AstraZeneca, Pfizer. Hopefully, the data by the end of this month. Um, you know, and and hopefully even the middle of the month, which would be fantastic. The uh, the second stage where they were doing the additional mix and matching that's going to be a little bit longer. So now we're pushing a little bit more in the summertime it becomes a bigger question about, okay, what what are you willing to give in regards to transmission versus how much vaccine you actually have available, and as well, the obviously, the the risks associated with AstraZeneca. So, you know, we, you have to take all of those things into, uh, you know, into account, and when you're dealing with more transmissible variants, I mean, we've certainly seen in Manitoba that once these things, you know, start to move through the population, we're not talking about 2020 anymore. We're talking about a, a new pandemic. So, uh, you know, we, based on that, I think we have to look at a strategy as quickly as possible to try and get, uh, you know, people protected and and hopefully get back to some normalcy.
1: Yeah, what are you seeing in Manitoba then? Are you seeing that gamma variant?
2: Um, so we're, we're, it's actually the, yeah, it's the, it's the, the, the 117 still that's moving through. Um, we're, we're, we've heard some cases of, of 16172, so the Delta variant. Um, you know, I, I think certainly, we're hoping right now that with the additional restrictions and that as well the the increasing vaccine coverage that will you know hopefully not see that um, start to overtake one one seven. It's difficult, right? Is that all? This is a race against time, and you know unfortunately we were a little bit behind the ball. I think we're catching up now, but, you know, cases are dropping, test positivity is dropping, but ICUs are, are still, you know, completely overloaded. So hopefully the next few weeks we'll, we'll get some sort of a reprieve from that.
1: So what would, you, what would you tell somebody then, Jason, who had that first shot AstraZeneca is just waiting for an opportunity to find out what's next?
2: Yeah. You know, listen, I think the first thing we want to get across to people and I want to get across to people is, listen, the AstraZeneca vaccine is, is very, very good. It's had great efficacy. Um, certainly, there's been some concerns, uh, you know, in regards to safety in, in very, you know, kind of, you know, specific populations. Um, th- those are still low risks, but we want to be, uh, you know, accepting of those and, and upfront about those. But it's a great vaccine. Now, waiting puts you into a position where you are only have partial protection and that's a concern because with that partial protection, that doesn't mean that you are now immune to, to severe disease and you are you know, now protected from getting infected. So we want to see people get that second dose so we can cut transmission rates and keep people out of the hospital. So, you know, really, this is about protecting yourself, but also protecting those uh, those around you, including in your community.
1: Right. Well, listen, thanks for joining us this morning.
0: Always a pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: All right, Raji Sohal back with us this morning. We're talking about some very interesting news out of the UK today. Hi, Raji.
3: Hi, Simi. Good morning. Yeah, Buckingham Palace in hot water again because uh, some exclusive documents have come out and they're shared on Guardian um, that show the Buckingham Palace banned ethnic minorities from office roles.
1: Okay. So, so many questions with this. Yeah. <laughs> so this, in light of, I think the reason why this is also making a lot of news is because, you know, they have been in the news a lot recently because of allegations of uh, racism and not being as nice to Meghan Markle as they could have or should have or would have been because there's some kind of feeling that, you know what, she was too ethnic for the royal family, Right.
3: Yeah. I mean, this is this has been anything race with Buckingham Palace has been a PR disaster from the start. But this these documents coming out now are just going to reignite the debate over the British royal family and race. And royalists want to say that, oh, you know, things are better now and it, we have no problem with race. In fact, do you remember what Prince William had to say about that.
1: Yeah. He, he doesn't think that they were, what did he say? It's like not very very, much racist or very much not racist.
3: Very much not racist. After um, it came out that certain people in the Royal family, and it was suggested that it was Prince Charles um, had concerns over the color of the skin of uh, Meghan Markle's baby. And it was like, read the room, Prince William. That is not, the the Look it, not the
1: appropriate Look at if time. If there's one thing the royal family is not known for, it is reading the room. That's just not something I think that they do.
3: Exactly. Have you seen this uh, show that was produced by Prince Harry and Oprah called The Me You Can't See?
1: You know, I can't avoid it because it feels like it's everywhere. Even if I turn on the TV, like Apple TV, to see what's on there, it's all over there. But no, I have not yet watched it. I've seen a couple of clips from it, though.
3: Yeah, it's revelatory because it? Prince Harry, yeah, he really lets loose and he's very comfortable doing so. It doesn't even seem like he's trying to wage war. He's just dealing with the trauma, literally he calls it, of being in that family and not being able to discuss mental health with, re- with regards to how um, Mar- uh, Meghan Markle was feeling in that family being, you know, attacked by British tabloids constantly for her background
1: What broke my heart in just reading a little bit about this story was where he talked about how when his mother died, first of all, he had memories of being in a car with her, being driven by her, with his brother, being chased by the paparazzi, his mother crying, how traumatic that was for them. And then she died and how nobody ever talked to him. About his mother, nobody, not even his dad, nobody came to him and said, are you okay? I mean, he was just a baby, like he was just a little kid at that time, right? Uh, Even that funeral, the image of him kind of walking, you know, in the procession. And again, you think this child and has just lost his mother, his world, and nobody came to him and said, are you okay? What do you need? It's, it's, It's shocking.
3: Yeah, and apparently they told him, "Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it to anyone. Don't talk it to. Don't talk about it with professionals. Certainly, don't seek therapy." And it wasn't until after he married Megan that he really sought uh, professional help. And it seems like he's, you know, processing it pretty well. He's very open with Oprah on the show, but um, these documents that have come out that have been. Um, uh, shared with uh, the Guardian, state that the Buckingham Palace negotiated controversial clauses that remain in place to this day, that exempt the Queen and her household from uh, laws that prevent race and sex discrimination. So there's still <laughs> some sticking points.
1: So they're just not wild. any laws about that, that are just not applicable to Buckingham Palace. So whatever goes on there doesn't matter what you do. It, it has no, there's no rules about it.
3: You got it. I mean, this isn't going to be a surprise to a lot of people, um, but this stuff still strikes me as surprising because it's like in these times, you'd think that institutions that are as big as this one are trying their best to adapt to the times. And even, you know, some of the most wild comments that came out of Buckingham Palace around race came out after the BLM protests. So it, it really felt like, as you say, uh, they, did, they were not reading the room. Yeah, I don't think anything is going to change there.
1: Do you, though? Like, I- even if you just read the tabloid media or read any of the British newspapers, they're very much invested in protecting, you know, the line of succession. So nothing bad about Prince Charles, nothing bad about Prince William and his family, but everything else, everybody else outside of that seems to be fair game.
3: I think things are changing. I think they're changing slowly. They do, they do not in British culture discuss race the same way they do in America. And. It's actually fine that they don't. They have a very different and unique uh, history. So they need to still talk about it, but they got to talk about it differently in a way that has to do with their own culture and their own history and their own background, including, you know, the Commonwealth, which is hugely problematic. So I think things are changing. They're just changing at a very,
0: very slow pace.
1: <laughs> so interesting. Raji, thanks for that this morning.
0: Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Our other public health emergency continues to get worse, even as our COVID-19 numbers get better. When it comes to overdoses in our province, we know that at least 176 British Columbians died in the month of April. That is up 43% from April of 2020, according to the BC Coroner Service. It also means that April marked the 14th straight month that saw more than 100 suspected illicit drug toxicity deaths in B.C. Well, our next guest works as a harm reduction advocate and peer clinical counselor dealing with addiction overcame drug addiction himself. Guy Felicella is with us. Good morning, Guy.
4: Morning, Simi. Thanks for having me.
1: When you hear those numbers, what do you you think?
4: Well, I I just think it's, you know sad that we continue to you know have the the same thing happening month after month it's just it's very traumatizing to to wait for that report to come out month after month knowing it's um it's not good
1: what do you think is happening out there right there's we know that there's programs and outreach but what is going on with the drug supply
4: well the the drug supply is just, you know, you're in an era of synthetic fentanyl and that's just the what it is out there. So you have to you have to compete with that and, and we're not and, and really um not giving people options. I, I mean, you know, I know you hear that there's safe supply programs, but those are limited to, you know, a few hundred people. Um so there's much more people using drugs um behind closed doors, private residents, in every community across the province. And most people's minds um, think it's people who are struggling with poverty or um, homelessness that are substances. So that's just not the case. The case is is that there's a lot of people in our province and in our country who use drugs, but they, they don't talk about it because of the stigma that exists around it.
1: Right. And so even if they are a recreational user because they thought, listen, it's always been like this and it's fine, is it the toxicity in the drug supply now that is getting them?
4: Yeah, it's just they, you don't know your dose. I mean, you know, even even uh, anyone who's a, a seasoned drug user or an intermittent drug user, I mean, they know what they take, but they just don't understand the dosing because there's no um, labels on the drugs. So you buy something one week, and then the next week it can change. And what we need is is drugs that have known dosing so that people can actually, when they're purchasing their substances, that they'll know what they're getting. This is the best information that you can give a, a, any drug user. It's kind of like when you go into the liquor store, you don't buy, you buy a 5% beer, you know what, what's in it. It's not 140 proof. Um, same same kind of thing. It's like we continue to make the same mistakes over and over again, and we're not learning our lessons from those mistakes. And we can only look to prohibition of alcohol from uh, what that caused in our society and just how um, we're, We've done this before. We can do this with this um, and find a way out.
1: Right. Aren't we moving towards this, though? Like, we have so much discussion about it.
4: Yeah, that's we're good at talking about it. But like, you know, in B.C., B.C. likes to compare itself as the, the best in Canada at harm reduction. But I'd like them to compare themselves with other countries like Switzerland and the Netherlands who have, you know, widespread heroin assisted programs there that people can access to heroin and. Um, And there's, you know, we just focus on, you know, gathering evidence all the time. Well, the evidence is clear that uh, heroin has saved many drug users' lives, especially in Switzerland and the Netherlands. It's a program that works. And in British Columbia, there's 120 people or 130 people on heroin in the province of British Columbia. Actually, in the country of Canada, there's about 140 people on heroin, all in B.C. So, you know... For us here in British Columbia, we have to create a domestic supplier. The Canadian federal government needs to amend the CDSA and work with a pharmaceutical company to actually make heroin in Canada and then distribute it and and scale up these programs so people have access to it. That would save many lives.
1: What do we do with that, though, Guy, right? What if along with that, do we also have to ramp up the ability to say, listen, we can help you as well. You don't have to do this.
4: Well, I think, you know, people make those decisions themselves when there's options that are given to them. And also, too, you have to look at, you know, there's other challenges as well. I mean, wait lists to go into, you know, to get off drugs. I, I, I've been a, I don't support harm reduction over recovery and I don't support recovery over harm reduction. I support people and I give people all the options. But, you know, the interesting thing is that when I'm in the downtown east side or you know, I'm seeing people, people don't talk to me about drugs. They talk to me about, you know, they want help. They want. They want, uh, they want housing, they want to, you know, improve the quality of their lives. And um, that's just very challenging because of the systems that are in place don't, we just don't do a good enough job at helping people move, move on.
1: I think everybody can agree on that, right? That's like one thing that we have said throughout the pandemic is we want to help people move away from those choices. Are we making any progress in that area?
4: You know, like you know, so there's 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 things that are in place, but just it's you you kind of have to go back to really, you know, the challenges in the laws and policies that don't allow us to actually do things like bad drug policy that's in place that hasn't been changed in decades. Really needs to be changed for us to allow things to be different for people. It just you know harm reduction can't be reducing the harms of a bad drug policy. You actually have to change drug policy. Um, to reduce the harms, not ask harm reduction to reduce those harms. And that's where we're at right now. And until we actually start looking at the root causes, which is our bad drug policies and laws, um, we'll continue to see this. And the illicit drug market will continue to thrive and change.
1: So you don't see any change between so these numbers that we're talking about from April and whenever the next set of numbers come out?
4: I, I see it being relatively the, the same or higher if um, if we don't try to completely um, give people a choice to remove them from the illicit drug supply. Yes, they'll, it'll continue.
1: Guy, thanks for your time on that this morning.
0: Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Have you thought about what your next car is going to be? Will it be gas? Will it be electric? The number of electric vehicle models available has been dramatically increasing this year as car makers offer up more and more choices. And yet, over the past two years, there's been a negligible increase in the number of drivers out there in BC who say maybe their next car will be electric. That's according to some new research from a research company poll. Their online survey found 53% of British Columbians who drive their own cars say it is very likely or moderately likely that the next vehicle they buy for themselves or their household will be electric. That's up two points from a similar survey done two years ago. So what does that tell us? For more on this, we're joined by Mario Conseco, the president of Research Company. Mario, thanks for being here.
5: My pleasure, Simi. Good morning.
1: Good morning. So were you surprised to find out that it didn't really go up that much in the last couple of years, even though there's way more electric vehicles available?
5: I was. You know, there's a very um, laudable goal, and I think most British Columbians believe that it is, uh, to make sure that we have all the light-duty vehicles sold in the province uh, be electric by 2040, It seems like a long time away, but it's only it's less than two decades. And I was expecting the numbers to climb a little bit more and to have more British Columbians saying, when I get rid of my current car, the next one will be electric. But the numbers didn't really move that much from the first time we asked back in 2019.
1: Okay, so what are their concerns then?
5: The number one concern is price. And I think this is quite interesting because you have so many different options. And I think there's a lot of people out there who are thinking about their next electric vehicle and looking at the top-of-the-line model that has all the trimmings, and they're saying to themselves, no, this is too much money, when you have so many other options. If you're dreaming about a car that is going to cost $100,000, uh, you are forgetting that there are several options out there that are closer to the 30000 range. So maybe most of them are dreaming about the most fantastic electric vehicle they can find, and they're thinking that it's just too expensive right now.
1: Right, okay, and I know they had a couple of other concerns too, right? Yes, one of them is
5: charging stations. 27% who say they fear becoming stranded if they cannot find a charging station where they're driving. Um, We have so many maps available. We have more charging stations now than we had just a few years ago. But we continue to have this situation where motorists are saying to themselves, what is going to happen to me if I run out of battery in a place where I can't do anything about it? And, you know, it's been quite remarkable because we've had a really big a, a campaigns uh, telling people, you know, there are more charging stations, there are ways to do this. You're not going to get stranded. And we don't see these numbers moving. So definitely something that the government should reconsider because we have a lot of people out there who are saying, I don't want to do this because I don't know where I'm going to charge the car.
1: Yeah, I also got the impression from reading through this that there's a lot of people who think about road trips, right? And they, they worry about whether or not they can take the same kind of road trips with an electric car.
5: Well, this is crucial because we do see those numbers uh, really high outside of the Lower Mainland. If you're in Metro Vancouver and in Fraser Valley, you might be a little bit worried about this. But if you go to Southern British Columbia, the north, or the islands, you see more people who are saying to themselves, the way I drive and the distances that I drive, I'm definitely concerned that I'm going to run out of use and won't have a place to charge the car.
1: Oh, isn't that interesting? OK, and now I know that the government has set this goal of of moving us towards zero emissions by the year 2040. Did you ask people about that? Yes, that's
5: been consistent. When we first asked about this back in 2019, we had 70% of BC residents who said this is a a laudable goal and I support it. The numbers haven't moved. So it's quite remarkable in the sense that we look at this as something that is going to be great for the environment and something that will be good for the government as well. Uh, But we're not changing our behavior just yet. I think there's a lot of people who are holding on to the cars that they have and not really making a, a, a concerted effort uh, to look into electric vehicles as the ones they would acquire in the future. So it's complex, you know. We, we only mm-hmm. have 20 years to reach this, and I was expecting the numbers to be a little bit higher when it came to likelihood of, of actually purchasing electric vehicles, uh, but the numbers just aren't there yet. You know, there's more information that needs to be given to BC residents so they can be ready for this change.
1: We have a ways to go. Mario, thanks for your time on that.
5: My
1: pleasure. See me anytime. That's Mario Conseco, president of research company, talking about electric cars and how you out there, British Columbians, feel about them. Asked if that would be your next vehicle, and they found that in Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley, fifty-nine percent of people there who responded said, "Yeah, they could foresee that next vehicle being electric." But southern, va- southern part of the province, southern BC, only forty-two percent. Vancouver Island. 42% Northern BC, 41% a couple of the top fears of that is too expensive and fear of becoming stranded if they cannot find a charging station.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Are you ready for the border to open with the United States? How many of you are ready to go down there and do a little shopping, maybe? Well, if you say yes, then that is music to the ears of businesses that are south of the border. And some of them have been talking with our senior reporter, Janet Brown, who joins us now. Good morning, Janet.
6: Good morning, Simi. Maybe not a little shopping, but a lot of shopping. A lot of people I'm talking to, they can't wait to get back down to Bellingham and Blaine for the cheaper gasoline, the Edeline dairy that was newly built in Blaine a few years ago, and of course the Bellis Fair Mall simi. I mean, yes, bring it on, right? That's what everybody is saying. And just like Canadian businesses, Bellingham businesses can't wait for the Canadian shoppers to get back once again. I have spoken with the Port of Bellingham and Whatcom County Director of Economic Development Don Goldberg, and he says so many shops down there just over the border are depending on Canadian traffic. Here is more of my interview with him.
7: Being a border county, Whatcom County is a border county, um, a lot of the residents here as well as shoppers here are Canadian, so uh, the border between our two countries is affecting both both sides as to our normal day business as well as uh, a lot of shops that depend on Canadian traffic. And, you know, Point Roberts, uh, excuse me, and Point Roberts, of course, is part of Whatcom County, which is on Canadian landmass. So that's another aspect of this whole conversation.
6: Don, are you able to say how much Bellingham businesses actually rely on Canadian shoppers?
7: Um, In general, I would say it's to a degree, it's hard to separate how much, um, lost business is associated with Canadian traffic in the city of Bellingham and how much is associated with just COVID in general. But uh, we, we do know that um, businesses have suffered uh, quite a bit. The county receives almost 12% of its sales tax from Canadian residents coming down here to buy. Um, so So Bellingham surely has been hurt. The, the cities that have been hurt the, the worst is uh, Blaine and Sumas, Blaine being um, number one.
6: Are you able to speak about the Bellis Fair Mall and how it's getting along? Because obviously it is a favorite of Canadians. And even before the pandemic, uh, you know, a lot of businesses in there were struggling.
7: Yeah um I I'm, I'm not really incredibly up to date on the uh, occupancy uh, of the mall uh, and you're correct you know malls in general have been hurting and um uh, internet uh, business has hurt malls probably more than anything. Uh, so they were hurting and they continue to hurt. And, and of course, the closure of the border has made it that much worse. But I don't have any data on what shops uh, have closed or not.
6: Don, any idea from your side of the border when the border with Canada could possibly reopen?
7: Well, we hear a lot of rumors. Uh, the most recent rumor is on the U.S. side that there is a potential of opening uh, June 22nd on the U.S. side. That has not been confirmed uh, by uh, by the American Consulate or, or the uh, powers-to-be on uh, immigration. Um, on the Canadian side, uh, we have not heard anything about opening... Uh Right now, the only official information we have is both sides of the border are looking to get to seventy percent vaccination rate to uh before opening um, Most of us believed that the border would not open until the first of the year we We have a little bit more confidence that uh the border will open up sooner than that.
6: did you say next year
7: correct? Yeah, that's that's been what we've been operating on up until the last month or so. That um, without any uh, government uh, um, commitments on either side of the border, that we felt that it'd probably go for quite a long time. Now that uh, it's kind of a reverse. Now we were uh, the U.S. side was uh, having much higher infection rates than the Canadian side. But now, of course, we have a much higher rate of vaccination than you do. So now it's uh, Canada that is a little bit more leery about opening the border because of infecting Canadians uh, because of lack of vaccination.
1: All right. Let's talk a little bit more about that vaccination rate then, Janet, because that has been critical. B.C. is certainly speeding along there. But I know that in Washington state they were doing really well. They've kind of slowed down a little bit.
6: They have, Simeon, and and they were miles and miles ahead of B.C. at the very beginning. But, you know, as he talks about, our vaccination rate, at least in British Columbia, for adults is just over the 70 percent mark. Uh, Children 12 to 18 is just over 68 percent. So we are getting at that mark. So I would assume and considering all the pressure that's on the Canadian federal government and the U.S. federal government, that they do have to come up with some sort of plan soon in terms of reopening the border. And as uh, we heard from the Surrey Board of Trade, Anita Hubberman, the CEO there, you know, it's just not flicking a switch and saying, okay, the border is opening tomorrow. She yeah. says businesses need weeks and weeks and weeks to plan for this and get ready. and. So, you know, she is expecting some sort of direction from the federal government and in terms of an opening date, maybe they're not going to come up with that, but at least give businesses, travelers, etc. some sort of idea when we can expect the border to open. And a lot of people are saying, you know, it has to open sometime in July. Uh, but if it's not July, when is it going to be? And I was surprised, actually, Simi, that he mentioned a lot of businesses stateside weren't thinking the border would open until perhaps January of next year. I yeah, mean, I was surprised grief. too. Could you imagine that? But I think it is going to be sooner, consider the vaccination rates. But you know, you can't open the border south of B.C. with uh, Washington and not the rest of the borders. So it has to be done in unison. So it depends on the rest of the country and the rest of the country in the United States as well. So it's just not us in this picture. And while businesses are hurting and they can't wait for us Canadian shoppers to get down to Bellingham and Sumas and Blaine, etc., we have to wait for the rest of the country to catch up. So I would expect right. some sort of um, announcement of some kind, I would think, from the Prime Minister, in the next couple of days, at least, Simi.
1: Yeah, but you get that sense of impatience now where it just seemed like for a very long time, I think everybody was like, no, no, keep the border closed. But now, in the last little while, I start to hear more from people saying, you know, let's talk about this. How are we going to reopen this border?
6: Oh, absolutely. And you know, people are making plans already. I, I'm hearing from people they um they're planning to go to Disneyland next spring for spring break and they had already purchased tickets for Disneyland, etc., last year, expecting to go then and even the year before that. So people are itching and chomping at the bit as we get more people yeah. vaccinated and people become more confident for sure. And let's face it, Simmy, I think a lot of people are excited not to necessarily go to Disneyland or Florida, but you know maybe just over the border to Seattle or Bellingham for a bit of shopping, a bit of that cheaper gas yeah. and cheese and everything else we usually go down for. I'd be
1: a little happy just going to Costco and Bellingham right now. That's you all it would take. You better believe right? it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought. All right, Janet, thank you. Thank you, Timmy. That you is too. our uh, senior reporter, Janet Brown, talking about the potential for the border to reopen and how businesses in Washington State, and Bellingham in particular, would love to see Canadians down there. We talked about vaccination rates and how things have slowed down in Washington State. That is true. According to the uh, the government in Washington, the state government in Washington there, about 57% of the population has gotten a first dose in Western Washington and about 46% have been completely vaccinated, but that is still much lower, even though it's first and second dose, much lower where they need to be in order to think that herd immunity is taking effect. And we can talk about the border reopening, right? So they're currently on a big push to get more people vaccinated in the state of Washington.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: It's no secret or surprise that we've been very worried about our salmon populations in recent years, I'd say even the last couple of decades for sure. It's a huge problem for people who rely on salmon for their, you know, for their livelihood, for people who fish, for local indigenous people, and even salmon predators like killer whales for sure. Our Raji Sohal joins us now for more on this. Hey, Raji.
3: Hi, Simi. Yeah, I talked to uh, Dr. Gideon Mordecai. He's a viral ecologist at UBC Department of Medicine, and he walked me through what he and his colleagues have found out about a debilitating virus from Norway known as PRV. PRV is affecting wild Chinook salmon in BC waters.
8: Uh, It's one of the most common viruses uh, in salmon farming operations. And in Atlantic salmon, it's known to cause heart disease.
3: Hmm. Does it kill
9: the fish?
8: That's a great question. And, and you know, in, in, in controlled challenge studies in the lab, mortality is not seen. Um, in, on farms, mortality is quite low. Um, and actually, I think that's one of the reasons why this virus is able to transmit so well. We're, we're used to the idea, but, um, you know, really virulent viruses like Ebola do not transmit very well because the transmission chain is, is ended by the disease or the mortality. Um, But, you know, we've got concerns that the sublethal effects of this virus um, could be influencing the survival of wild salmon. Wild salmon don't just have to live in a net pen where they're fed. They have to uh, evade predation. They have to hunt food. They have to migrate. They have to migrate to spawn. Um, So they have all these different challenges in their life. And we're concerned that disease might be influencing, how they how they survive
3: how common and widespread is the virus
8: that's a good question in in atlantic salmon farms in british columbia the virus is very 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 common Um, we we show in our paper that by the end of a production cycle almost all of the atlantic salmon in a farm become infected the prevalence in wild fish is obviously much lower but the really important point is that the closer fish are sampled to these atlantic salmon farms the more likely they are to be infected with the virus. Um, And obviously the prevalence changes depending on the time of year and where you are. But what we found was this association with distance from farms and infection.
1: Okay. So Raji, this is fascinating because this is something obviously that has been long debated and discussed here in British Columbia, right? Lots of concerns about this, this idea that open net fish farming impacts the health of wild salmon.
3: Yeah, exactly. So the farmed salmon, the ones in the open nets, are spreading the virus to the wild salmon. And what Dr. Mordecai was saying there is that the closer that the wild salmon is to these um, open net uh Fishing contraptions, then the more likelihood there is of the disease passing. And he actually used the word epidemic to describe the scenario. The researchers did genomic analysis that showed there's continual transmission from the net pen salmon to wild salmon. And since PRV was introduced uh, about 30 years ago, this has been happening. In terms of keeping salmon safe, some say what's needed is a move to different farming technology one that would stop that kind of disease transfer. Here's Dr. Gideon Mordecai again.
8: There are growing calls to try and minimize interactions between wild fish and salmon farming for these kind of reasons. Um, the, the concern over the risk of spillover of disease and parasites, um, and the way that is gonna be done is, is still up in the air, but there are calls to remove the fish farms from the water and bring them onto land.
3: This study could actually be very useful outside of conservationism, too. It has the potential to affect the Department of Fisheries and Oceans.
8: Pacific salmon are a foundation species, and they provide bear, uh, food for the bears and the killer whales. Um, and they're now sharing their waters with these net pens of non-native Atlantic salmon, which have this non-native virus. And there are growing calls to minimize these interactions. Um, and I think the evidence in our paper supports these calls. So,
1: Raju, would you say that this is a more definitive link, uh, you know, of the health of of the fish, the farm salmon versus wild salmon? Because I know for years this has been talked about, but this sounds like it is a much more kind of thorough look at this.
3: It's a more thorough look. They are laying out the evidence. Uh, The genome sequencing they did is that all that work is pretty interesting and persuasive. Um, But if you're hinting at, uh, you know, what kind of change comes out of this. Well, yeah they are just scientists, right? So they've been told actually that uh, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans will you know, look at their paper, consider their paper, but um, they're scientists, they're not politicians, they're not government bodies. So all they can do is just put that, put that out there. Right.
1: So we're working towards though, land-based fish farming. It seems like we've been talking about it for years. It's happening. We've been talking about closing down open net fish farming for years. I mean, are we making progress on this?
3: somewhat but not enough and there's still so much impact from um, open net fishing but you know there's economic interest too right so just department of fisheries uh, and oceans is always having to balance that right and so is there a concern
1: like a health concern for humans here
3: good question. I think a lot of people hearing this story are, are wondering about that. Is there a danger to people who eat salmon? So there is no known human risk to humans. It is not a human health issue. But you know, as with everything, it's all connected. And sometimes with right. time, it's only that we see how viruses can aff- in within one species can affect another. So right, yeah, we'll just have to keep an eye on this.
1: Plus, we would like to make sure there's still salmon around, right, for us to check out us. Um, Raji, thank you.
0: Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, the last couple of days, it sure felt like summer is here. I've started to think about local fruit, right? Local strawberries, blueberries, and later on in the Okanagan, you can drive and get peaches and all sorts of good stuff. But what are you going to do with it? Well, what is the best type of summertime pie to make? We thought we would go straight to the expert for that. Janelle Parsons joins us now, the founder and head of the Pie Hole. Hi, Janelle.
9: Hi, Simi.
1: How are you?
9: I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I'm
1: good, thanks. You know, we haven't had a chance to talk since your book came out. Tell us about the book. Are there all your secret recipes are in there?
9: They are. Oh, my God. Just you mentioning it, Simi, I got goosebumps. I love this book. I've shared everything that people in Vancouver have come to love about the pie hole.
1: Okay, so what are some of the recipes that are in there?
9: Um, and some of the favorites, and I think probably the number one favorite for people, is our raspberry cream crumble, featured on Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And then just like you said, local fruit's coming out. So it's like the perfect time.
1: Okay, so I'm going to tell you about this raspberry cream crumble pie of yours. So <laughs> I'm not a big raspberry fan. I know, I know. Don't come at me, but I'm not a huge raspberry fan. However, I saw that episode of Diners Drive-Ins and Times, <laughs> and I saw that they made that pie. And I thought, well, maybe I should try that pie. So I was in your shop a couple months ago and got that pie. I was like, all right, I'll try this pie. And you know what? It is the greatest thing ever. So thank you for that. Now, is that a, are you sure it's not a secret recipe? You put that recipe in the book?
9: That's the one that hurt a little to put in the book. I'm going to be honest because it is our number one top seller, like right alongside Apple. But I was like, do I give this away? Because like, I shouldn't even say this, but it's actually pretty easy to make. So I put it in the book, but, um, Yeah, I shared it.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, that's good to know. So is this the time of year when things ramp up for you too? Because now you've got all sorts of great stuff available to make all sorts of pies.
9: Definitely. It's exciting for us because, I mean, we're busy all year and fall with like all the apple pies, but we get so tired of apples. So as soon as we get this plethora of fresh stuff, and you were mentioning strawberries, like BC has the best strawberries. And so I'm just holding on like very, very soon. We've already got the rhubarb in, peaches, like cherries, just we're so lucky.
1: Okay, well, let's start. What is your favorite summertime pie?
9: For me? Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's like a toss up. Um, So we're going berries. I love our blackberry, rhubarb, ginger. It's tart. It's surprising. It's just like bright in your mouth. And then the classic lemon meringue, because I just can't get over that fresh feeling. Oh, I
1: love a good lemon meringue, too. Okay, so when it comes to using fruit, though, in pies, like it can be tricky, though, right? Can you give us some tips for that?
9: Most definitely. And there's some in the book as well. Um, We do something that I've kind of coined as berry dust. um, And it's kind of like a play on on fairy dust. And it's just a little mixture of um, just sugar and flour that you sprinkle on the bottom. So that's going to help absorb all the fresh fruit juice and prevent a soggy bottom.
1: Oh, okay, good. What's the secret to the crust, though?
9: butter <laughs> and a lot of it so we so, call ours a double butter pastry and for good reason anyone who makes it is a little apprehensive they're like there's no way this is right but trust me like when you have that much butter and the way you work with it you get that flaky crust and and I gave that one up too which people were very surprised they're like you're sharing your crust recipe
1: yeah you shared your actual pie crust recipe in here
9: Exactly. I know. And I've always made the staff sign NDAs. Like this is top secret. And and I did it. I put it in the book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure your staff is like, what do you mean? You made us not tell anybody. And now here you are (laughs) putting it out there in the book. Uh, What So what are the best types of fruits, do you think? Like obviously not everything makes a great pie, right? You must have learned that over time.
9: Definitely. And like, even with berries, like blueberries, especially, we get those big fat ones, which are delicious to eat. Uh, They're a little bit more juicy. So going for the small, like local wild ones is way better. And you're going to get packed more punch with the flavor as well. Um, And just trying to go fresh whenever possible. As soon as you freeze those berries, it changes things up a bit.
1: Yeah. So are you saying that you try to use the fresh produce as much as possible? You're not particularly fond of frozen?
9: Exactly. So, I mean, pies like that raspberry cream and even our blueberry goat cheese basil, because we're mixing a custard in, they can use the frozen local berries that we stock up on at the end of the year, um, and we can do them all year round. But for sure in the summer, like, go hard and make as much, and eat as much fruit pie as you can.
1: What are some of the most unusual combinations do you think that you've made?
9: Well, blueberry goat cheese basil is one where people come in and they want to know, like, I've even had someone email, is this a salad? (laughs) And I get that, but um, so that one's definitely unique. Um, And then let me just think, my goodness, I've done so many over the years. I've got the book in front of me flipping through. Um,
1: You talked about ginger there too. Like when do you put ginger in a
9: pie? Well, that adds like a nice little kick. So you add that with the blackberries and the rhubarb and it's a little lemon zest and like it's just this little surprise but it really marries nicely
1: right everybody has strawberry and rhubarb but you're talking blackberry and
9: rhubarb yes i mean don't get me wrong we do strawberry rhubarb but blackberry rhubarb it's just it's such a fun pie hmm. do, you do you like tart you know it's a trend here I like i'm lemon I'm blackberry and blackberry rhubarb i like the tart pies
1: hmm. you clearly do uh, what about just like a plain strawberry pie
9: And that's something that we've actually had a lot of fun recently. We don't have one, but there's one coming. Um, A fairly famous Hollywood director reached out to me with his pie choice, and I made one for him, and it got a lot of attention online. And uh, we're going to coincide it with the release of his new movie.
1: I'm sorry. What? Tell me this story. What is this all about?
9: (laughs) Well, this is um, James Gunn. So Guardians of the Galaxy, the Suicide Squad, Avengers. Um, He frequents the pie hole a lot, and he reached out and... I said, you know, we're doing a coloring contest. Do you want to join? Because that's the natural thing you do to a big Hollywood director. Um, and he, he did, and he wanted a strawberry cream cheese pie. So I made one for him. It's been shared, like, over 150,000 times online, and it was phenomenal. So when Suicide Squad comes out, it's going to be called the Strawberry Squad, and we're going to launch this pie, so August 6th.
1: Okay, now that is exciting. <laughs> now that is a celebrity recipe pie right there.
9: I know, and he named it, so this is really
1: legit. That is impressive. Okay, now, you talked about your raspberry crumble pie there. We know it's yep. extremely, extremely popular. Just, can you give us the recipe? Just run through some of those ingredients, help us out if we want to make it?
9: Well, of course. I mean, you want to obviously have raspberries, and if you watch the Triple D episode, which you have, there's a lot of raspberries in there. Don't be cheap with those. Um, and then it's sour cream-based which it might seem surprising, but it's like a custard. So it's really simple. It's sour cream, sugar, um, eggs, which we get from Colony Creek Farm, so like local, support local. Um, And and we just blend that up and pour it over top of all these beautiful fresh raspberries and then just put a nice white sugar crumble. So you're getting that textural crunch when you eat it. And we're basically making the jam in the pie.
1: Okay, I'm sold on that one. I'm going to have to try that recipe out for sure. Uh, Janelle, thank you.
9: Oh, well, thank you for me. I know you've been a long time supporter and I appreciate that. So, Thank you. Well, I loves me a good pie.
1: Thank you for that. <laughs> have a good day. You as well. Bye now. That's Janelle Parsons. She's the head of the pie hole. Uh, if you haven't checked them out, you should. And she's got a great new book out as well with all her favorite pie recipes in there. I think I'm going to have to check out, try making this raspberry cream pie because you know what? Like I said, I'm not a raspberry fan, but this pie is Great. Now I'm going to have to try the strawberry one too. What is your favorite summertime pie? Let me know. Send me at cknw.com.